in our text is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. If you've spent any time around me, you'll know that 1 and 2 Timothy are some of my favorite words in Scripture. Why? I find in them such great personal encouragement. And those of you who are with us, I think just about everyone here, we spent quite a bit of time going through First and Second Timothy and studying Paul's words here to his young protege, his beloved child in the faith. And you know from those words which we've studied that so much of what Paul is laboring to communicate to Timothy is his last words, his last words given to Timothy to encourage him in boldness and endurance. And so often when I find myself lacking in both boldness and assurance and confidence, First and Second Timothy are a place I often return to. In our text tonight, we see just this. Paul laboring here in his more than likely final letter and final words We see him laboring to encourage young Timothy once more, to give him assurance of a calling which he has received from God, to exhort him to faithfulness in that calling, and to do what really each one of us are called to do, which is to encourage one another by the power of the gospel, by sharing what the gospel has done to transform our own lives. And that's really what one of the reasons I love, among many, one of the reasons I love 2 Timothy is because... It is so personal that Paul here is describing uh, the process by which the Lord has transformed him. And so the man who elsewhere will say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver this body from death and sin? Here can say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. So we too. Hearing Paul's last words to Timothy can take great encouragement and and there find a reason for us to be bold in our callings as well. So 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 8, read through verse 14. We're going to focus on verses 12 through 14 tonight. Hear now the very word of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I presently do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit now entrusted to you. Let's pray. 
Lord, we do come to throw ourselves upon your truth this evening. And we ask, as was prayed this morning, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. May what is spoken tonight not be my words, but yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul gives Timothy a command. He says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That is, do not be ashamed about the gospel. But also, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Isn't that interesting? Paul describes his relationship to Christ as being that of a prisoner. It models the language we see in Romans where Paul describes his relationship with Christ as a slave to righteousness. A slave to Christ. Do not be ashamed, Timothy, of the testimony about our Lord, and do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. Do not be ashamed. How, how does he commend Timothy to not be ashamed? He commends him by his own example, for later he will go on to say in verse 12, I am not ashamed. And if I am not ashamed, then you, Timothy, also must not be ashamed. And, and what did Paul have to battle against in terms of that shame. He had to battle against public opinion of him being chained, being prepared for an execution at the hands of the Romans. He says, do not be ashamed of that suffering. Do not be ashamed. Do not be embarrassed. Do not, I think the sense given is, do not shrink back. Don't shrink back from the gospel Don't shrink back from your calling in that gospel. Don't shrink back from the call to suffer for the sake of that gospel. I don't think there's ever been a point in my life that I can remember up until recent times where I've noticed increasing, increasing pressure to be ashamed about the gospel. To be ashamed about the precepts of the gospel. To be ashamed of the biblical ethic. To be ashamed of biblical morality. I can't remember a time in my life in which there's been more pressure upon us as Christians to be ashamed for what we believed. To be ashamed for even the words that we've just read tonight in Leviticus chapter 20. To be silent about sin. To not declare, as I heard this week, to to, to not talk about sin. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to scare people. We don't want to talk about the fact that the wages of sin is death. We, we, We want to talk about Jesus being love, but we don't want to talk about sin and death. Never have I seen or experienced so much pressure to be ashamed for the words of Scripture. When Paul calls Timothy to not be ashamed, we also ought to hear that call to not be ashamed. Timothy was laboring in the city of Ephesus. We discussed this when we were uh, going through our study. The city of Ephesus, much like Corinth, was a city rife with paganism, rife with pagan practices of prostitution, rife with pagan practices which many today would not want to speak of in public. This is where Timothy was called to minister to. He was called to bring the gospel into the darkest corners of Ephesus and is told here by Paul, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed when people look at you sideways for proclaiming the biblical ethic of sexuality. 
Don't be ashamed when you declare that marriage is between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship. Don't be ashamed when you preach against prostitution. Don't be ashamed when you preach the power of the gospel. Don't be ashamed when you call sinners to recognize that they are sinners in the hands of an angry God, fully deserving of God's just wrath. Don't be ashamed when they malign you. Don't be ashamed. I think sometimes we feel a bit of a disconnect in those words because we feel like, well, I may never have to minister in the same way that Timothy did. I may never have to minister in the same way that Paul did. Indeed, we may not have to stand before the highest emperor in the land and give an account of the gospel. But we also are called to proclaim the gospel in uh, somewhat more ordinary ways, but nonetheless equally challenging ways. Tell me how difficult it is to talk to a unbelieving family member and to not be ashamed of the gospel. Tell me how difficult it is to stand in front of an unbelieving son or daughter and stand upon the truth of God's word. Our challenge may not be Paul's, our challenge may not be Timothy's, but our goal is the same, which is to be faithful to the word of God, to stand upon God's word and to not be ashamed. Again, perhaps we are called to do that in more ordinary ways, and yet I believe that the need to not be ashamed of the gospel is, again, greater in my life than perhaps it's ever been. We must ask ourselves, are we willing to be bold in the same way? If not before the same audience as Paul, are we willing to be as bold as Paul, no matter who we're addressing? Whether that is family members or not. Will we be ashamed as pressure increases? I have no doubt that we are moving faster and faster towards a point at which you will not be able to speak this word in public. Where the very words that we are reading here tonight, the very words that we've read in Leviticus chapter 20, which by the way we recorded, so if they come for us, they've got plenty of material. There will be a time that's soon coming in which we cannot speak those words in a public sphere. And the question then will be, brothers and sisters, right now it's not so hard, especially not in the South. Where the, for the most part, we, if you, I, I just met some new neighbors yesterday. The second question they asked me was, where do you go to church? Well, what a wonderful question. I'm, 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 I'm so glad that they've asked where I go to church. Here in the South, it, it, is, it, it is not so, there's not so much pressure. There is not so much uh, uh, persecution for the gospel. But I do believe that a time is coming in which that will change. And of course, we also now have, the, the, uh, in some ways, a greater burden of interacting with people who in many respects, as John says, are inoculated to the truths of the gospel. And so you, you've actually got to take some pieces out before you can put some pieces back. But there is coming a time, I think, when we will have to face that pressure to not be ashamed, and it will be a lot hotter in the pan than it is now. Will we be ashamed? Will we shrink back? Or will we stand and be bold? Now, I like to believe and I like to answer that question with a bit of bravado and, and confidence and say, yes, I will stand. I will be faithful. But if we, if we don't know what we're standing on, when the time comes for us to confess 
and, and, and to say, I'm not ashamed, and then to proclaim, we must be standing on something solid, and it cannot be that we are relying upon ourselves. And that is our tendency, is it not? Our tendency is to rely upon ourselves, to trust in our intellect. Now, Paul here, he says, I am not ashamed. And so Paul has this boldness, and we want to know, well, where does Paul get this boldness? Where does it come from? Where is the source of that boldness that enables Paul to be able to say, I'm not ashamed. I will face the highest emperor in the land without shame. I will proclaim the gospel. I am not ashamed. The next words are, for I know. Now stop right there for a moment. If we stopped there, that's often where we end up. I know. Me. It's resting. If we, if we, if we stop there or if for some reason the manuscript was cut off and all we had left was... Right? I'm not ashamed because I know we would be left with self-confidence. We would be left with ego. We would be left with trusting in ourselves. I'm not ashamed because I know what we must have is what follows. I am not ashamed for I know whom, not what, whom I have believed. If we want to know where Paul gets his boldness from, we need only look to these words which tell us that Paul's boldness comes from a relationship. It comes from knowing, not not intellectual ability, not knowing facts. It comes from knowing Christ. It comes from having a relationship with Christ. And by those means, he's able to say, I am not ashamed, for I know Whom I have believed. And who is it that he has believed? He has believed upon Christ. And he goes on to say then, because I have believed, I am also convinced. Now, some translations may there have persuaded, but I think convinced here is a far better word because convinced is not only stronger than persuaded, but convinced carries with it a sense of action. In other words, this again is not just Paul saying, I know this, and it stays in the back of my mind, boxed up, neat and tidy. It's, I know this, I believe it, and I act upon it. The word that he uses here, I am convinced, is is used elsewhere by him in Romans chapter 8, verses 38. When he declares, he says, For I am sure... That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities can separate me from the love of Christ. When he says, I am sure, he's using the same words. And right before that, what does he tell us? He tells us that we are what? Mighty conquerors. And, and really, it's a verb. He says, we go on mightily conquering. So this word, I'm convinced, is not simply a mental assent. It's not simply, I know Jesus I know who he is. I know about him. It's that I know Christ. I've believed in Christ. And I am acting upon that belief. I know. I have believed. And I am convinced. And what is it that he is convinced of? He is convinced of some aspect of the character of Christ. He is convinced by some vestige of Christ, some image of Christ, something about Christ particularly that here is motivating him unto this kind of boldness which all of us would like to have. I would love to have the boldness to be able to stand before the President of the United States and preach the gospel, whether he would want to hear it or not. What is that boldness? Where does it come from? He says, 
I know, I have believed, I am convinced that what? That he, that is Christ, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted unto me. The words he is able. Able in the Greek is the word dunatos, which comes from, it's an adjective, meaning mighty or powerful. It comes from the noun dunamis, which means completely or comprehensively able to do. Comprehensively able to fulfill. Comprehensively able to fulfill. So what is he saying? He says, I am convinced that Christ has the full and complete power to do what? To guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, this is where things get a little bit interesting here. We're about to sing a song, I know whom I have believed, and believe that he is able to keep that which I've committed. So the hymnal here is taking the view that what this is saying is that what we are doing in placing our full belief and trust in Christ is that we are actually committing ourselves. We are committing our lives. We are committing our beings. We're giving ourselves over to Christ. Now that is true. But let me tell you this. And this is, this is incredibly encouraging. It is not the strength of our commitment unto Christ which will enable us to have the kind of boldness that allows Paul, that enables Paul to be able to stand before Caesar. It is not the strength of what we have committed unto God. It is the strength, it is the efficacy of God's commitment to us. So there's, 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 there is two kinds of entrusting or deposits that are happening here. That's what the word means in the Greek. It literally means that Christ is able to guard until that day my deposit. That's all it says in the Greek, my deposit. But the ESV here is taking the translation to say that, that this deposit is something that's been entrusted to us. And so we need to ask, what is it that has been entrusted to us? And Paul has already told us, if you look in verse 9, he says this, that we should not be ashamed of the Lord, we should not be ashamed of the gospel, the testimony of the Lord, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which what? He gave us. He entrusted us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that what God has done is he has done not because of anything good in and of ourselves. He didn't look down the scope of history and see who would be the most talented, who would have the greatest gifts, but simply out of his sheer grace and mercy through from all eternity, he ordained that we would have in him a holy calling entrusted to us in Christ Jesus. That is the deposit which God has made, a deposit which he has sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit by whom we worship here this very evening. This deposit which God has made is this holy calling in the gospel, a calling which he has given to each one of us before the ages began. So it is true, yes, that we have committed something unto Christ. We have committed something unto the Lord. We have given ourselves to the Lord. But the reality is, is that before we ever commit ourselves to the Lord, the Lord has already committed himself to us. We love, not, we love God, not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. And here is what's so 
encouraging is that that holy calling, that deposit, it's not secure because of the strength of our grip upon it. It's secure because of the strength of Christ's grip upon us. That's what Paul's saying. And that's where Paul's boldness comes from. It comes from the fact that he is convinced and acting upon this. He is convinced that who holds him together, who holds him in his hands, who holds his faith and his holy calling secure, it is Christ. And Christ is able to keep that deposit. He's able to maintain it. He's able to guard it until that day. What is that day? That day when Christ returns this is echoing other language of Paul, of course, in Philippians, right? 119, where he tells us that Christ will complete the good work begun in us the day when he returns. This is the source of Paul's boldness. Is that he knows, even if his commitment to the Lord is weak, even if he finds himself in moments where it's it feels like his very fingers are about to fall off, holding on, gripping on to his Lord. He knows that however frail his commitment may be to the Lord, the commitment of the Lord unto him is sure, and it is steadfast, and it is secure. Even that, that, that fact is what is behind those great truths in Romans where he tells us that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is that truth, it is that doctrine, it is that theology then which inflames Paul's heart and gives him the ability to be as bold as he is calling Timothy to be and as bold as he's calling us to be. If it was up to us, we would fail. If it was up to our commitment, we would fail. We are about to sing two hymns, not one as a song of response, because although I, I want us to together declare in the hymn, I know whom I have believed, that we are trusting in the Lord, that we have committed our lives, that we have committed all that we are, and we've given it over to Him. So in essence, we have given a deposit to the Lord by saying, my life is yours, Lord. But what we also need to recognize is that the, it is the Lord who holds us fast. Why? Read The words of your insert with me. Just follow along. For when I fear that my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, when I should have reason for shame, Christ will hold me fast. For I could never keep my hold. I could never hold on tight enough through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. And isn't it, is it not? Do, do you and I not find times at which our commitment unto the Lord is cold? Let's just go ahead and admit that to one another. Confess that. I'll stand before you and confess that. There, there are times. Though ministers are not exempt from it. I'm not even a minister yet. I'm not exempt from it. There are times when our love and our commitment unto Christ grows Cold, and if the strength of our faith is dependent upon us, if the if the if, if our holy calling is dependent upon our commitment to the Lord, then, then we would have failed many times over in the past. But because Christ is holding us secure, because He holds us fast, for that reason we can endure, for that reason we can be bold, for that reason we can take encouragement, for when we fail, when we shrink back when we fail to declare the gospel to those that we should have, 
when instead we stay silent, then we can remember it's not the strength of my commitment unto God. It is the strength of His commitment unto me. It is in that encouragement that Paul then concludes this passage by saying that we ought to, that we must follow the pattern of the sound or healthful words that we have heard from him in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Again, going back to Christ in whom all things hold together. But again, without the strength of Christ, we cannot even answer this command. We cannot follow in the sound words Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Again, the only way that we can do this is by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. By that power, we are to guard, we are to keep, we are to cultivate the good deposit which has been entrusted to us. There are many circumstances that we've probably already faced for which we are ashamed. I'm sure if we sat down and thought back through the many times which we should have spoken up but did not, we would be ashamed. I'm sure there are many times when we think back to things that we've done when we were slaves to sin and be ashamed for those things. How then can we set aside that shame and that fear and be bold in Christ and by His Spirit? Be encouraged in that fact tonight. That Christ holds you fast. Be strengthened in that reality. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to fail. You're going to fall short. And there are going to be times when you feel like your love for Christ is cold. In that moment, in those moments, you need to return to scriptures such as this and be reminded that it is Christ who holds your calling in Him secure. It is Christ who holds your faith secure. And it is because of Christ that you will be able to endure until the day in which He returns to complete the work that He has begun in you and bring you into glory where you will be with Him forever. And in the realms of heaven, there will be no shame. He will hold us fast. He presently holds us fast. We're about to take the sacrament together. Part of this great thing, ordinary thing that we are about to do, is the extraordinary promises that it communicates to us, which is not our commitment to the Lord, but His commitment to us, a commitment that brought the very Son of God down from heaven to take on human flesh, to die for us, to have His body broken and His blood spilt, to secure our calling and faith in Him. These are visible words which are intended to communicate that fact unto you. They are meant to strengthen your faith when it feels weak, to communicate the essence of who Christ is, the essence, the fullness of His love to you when your faith feels weak. And so when you take this sacrament tonight, remember, Christ is holding you fast. Follow in the sound words that we have heard tonight 
And by the Holy Spirit, guard that deposit entrusted to you. And the next time you are given the opportunity to proclaim, do so in the boldness which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. We know whom we have believed. And we are convinced that he has the power to guard that which has been entrusted to us until the day at which he will return. Lord, I pray that you would take this promise and plant it deep in our hearts so that we may respond in worshipful obedience, Lord, trusting in you. So that when we find ourselves in moments where our faith and love are cold, when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances and trials, that we will entrust ourselves to you and we will be ever more motivated by the fact that you love us, not because of our good works, but because of your purposes, because of your grace and mercy. Help us to trust, Lord, that you saved us For the purpose of good works that you do in and through us, help us to recognize that the good works that we do are not not done by the power of our own hands, but are, in fact, Christ working in and through us. This is the ground of our confidence, Christ and Christ alone. Help us, Lord, in trying times to stand upon that solid rock and to declare, in him I trust. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.